You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 5th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, a funeral like no other and with no blueprint will be in Rome as the Vatican prepares for the funeral of Pope Benedict. Also ahead, if not Kevin McCarthy, who will be the next Speaker of the US House of Representatives. No person having received the majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname, a Speaker has not been elected. Then we'll find out why the former president of Botswana is facing criminal charges. I am going to campaign very rigorously to ensure that there's regime change in Botswana. We'll have the latest on the new members of the UN Security Council. We'll flick through the day's papers and if you binged on box sets over the holidays, we'll have some new suggestions on what to watch in January. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The US President Joe Biden has raised concerns about China's handling of its COVID-19 outbreak hours after the World Health Organization said it was under-reporting virus deaths. Meanwhile, European Union member states have agreed to strongly encourage a requirement to all travellers coming from China to test negative for COVID. And Ukraine is to receive armoured battle vehicles from France. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first... In a little over an hour, the funeral of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI will begin. The setting of the Vatican couldn't be more familiar, but the nature of the ceremony and the circumstances are new. The current Pope, Francis, will preside over the funeral of his predecessor, who stipulated that the ceremony will be simple but sober. But even as one Pope stewards the others towards his final resting place, discussions are already being held about how the mood at the Vatican will change. After all, there have been effectively two popes sharing the same roof since Benedict's retirement in 2013. Well, joining me now from Rome is Christopher White, the Vatican correspondent for the National Catholic Reporter. A very good morning to you, Christopher. Good morning. Good to be with you. Thank you for sparing some time on what is clearly a very, very important day. I mean, what's the atmosphere like at the Vatican? Well, this is one of the the rarest moments in Catholic Church history that we're about to witness. Uh, And I think because of that, there's a a lot of uh, anticipation from Vatican observers like myself just to see how this unfolds. Uh, But for those in the square, uh, filling, you know, St. Peter's Square on this very foggy morning right now, uh, I I think, you know, most of these people are, you know, lifelong devout Catholics uh, that are just eager to pay their final respect. So in that sense, it's a, a reverential, serene uh, you know, attitude and feeling around here, uh, but also a sense that we're about to witness history. Um, just to explain to us a little bit about what we are we are going to see in the next few hours. Uh, the, the Pope Emeritus said that he wanted his funeral to be under the sign of simplicity. He wants it to be solemn but sober. Readings in what Spanish, Italian, English, and and uh, Latin. That's right. So we'll have a bit of, uh, you know, the global languages represented during the prayers of the faithful. But for the most part, this mass will be in Italian. Uh, But it is, you know, an occasion in which 
uh, Pope Francis is burying uh, his predecessor. And, and that is something with very few parallels in, in Catholic history. Uh, and I, I think that's why, uh, you know, the symbolism is, is so rich today. Uh, now, Pope Francis has, you know, reigned for 10 years and Pope uh, Benedict has largely been withdrawn, living a private life inside the walls of the Vatican during that time. So in, in many respects, his big send off uh, is not today, but it happened 10 years ago when he historically resigned the papacy uh, and, and more or less withdrew from, from public life. Uh, today is a, a sense uh, an opportunity to offer a final farewell and remember him. Uh, but the the big celebration, if you will, uh, was a decade ago. The the departure of Pope Benedict is the departure of what someone has said is, is representing a Europe that is no longer or is slipping away. His funeral brings down the curtain on an era. What do you think that might mean? Well, I think, you know, so much of Pope Benedict's papacy, and even before that as a theologian and then head of the Vatican's doctrinal office, was really this this battle with what he described as uh, the dictatorship of relativism. And he wrote tremendously about, you know, the importance of of not forgetting Europe's Christian roots. Uh, and that's, that's not a theme Pope Francis has dwelled on uh, in his 10 years as Pope. In fact, he's really diversified the leadership of the Catholic Church, appointing leaders and top cardinals uh, from all over the globe in places as remote as Tongo and East Timor and places that have never had Catholic cardinals before. And so I, I think one of the things that we've seen, particularly in the Francis papacy, is the real need for a focus on the peripheries rather than sort of the center of the church, which, you know, for 2000 years has been, you know, predominantly seen as European. And there was this great conservatism as well, which which Benedict absolutely imbued. I mean, this was a man who was so uh, steeped in tradition and and a sort of a, a, a way of doing things, which arguably we'll, we'll talk about the departure that, that that might be happening now. This is a man who resigned in Latin so much so that even his you know his cardinals didn't understand him when he said he was stepping down. Well, he's an ardent social conservative. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, a strong opponent of gay marriage and uh, abortion. Uh, but I, I think, you know, on certain issues, uh, he has to be seen as a progressive. He was the first pope to really uh, tackle the environment crisis long before a lot of world leaders were speaking out on it. And he had some very sharp and pointed words about the market economy. Uh, but you're right. I mean, in terms of church tradition, he was quite the traditionalist. Uh, in known for, you know, favoring certain liturgical vestments of, of a different era uh, that, it, you know, has been so, in a sense, um, rebuked by Pope Francis's style of simplicity and, you know, his desire to just wear white uh, and eschew some of the trappings of the papal office. Um, one thing that the, has sort of obviously made people raise questions is the fact that this was a man who stepped down. And there are there arguably fears that Ratzinger, Pope, Pope Benedict's retirement in 2013, created a precedent. Some have worried that uh, it's incredibly difficult if you're a Catholic to see that the Vicar of Christ on earth can effectively retire. Some have worried that, some have celebrated uh, that fact. Uh, you know, what we saw with Pope John Paul II when he died in 2005 was that, you know, the very last years of his life, you know, he was quite uh, immobilized and, it, you know, those closest to him would admit that he really wasn't running the show. Uh, that, of course, is at the same time when Vatican financial corruption and, and sex abuse uh, was at, at its worst in many respects. 
And I think Pope Benedict saw that firsthand and wanted to ensure that the church was not put in that position again. Uh, but the fact that he did step down, becoming the first pope to do so in 600 years, meant that over the last 10 years, the church has been making this up as as they go. You know, the role of a retired pope is is ill-defined, and that is something that church law will have to wrestle with uh, in, in the coming years if they want to, in a sense, you know, formalize what a what a retired pope looks like. How much did the Vatican have to wrestle with having two popes under the same roof? Well, I think Pope Francis, you know, spoke favorably on many occasions about having Benedict there inside the Vatican, referring to him as the the grandfather of grandfathers and praising his wisdom. Uh, But in other respects, he was a bit of a lightning rod. I think his presence inside the Vatican was for certain uh, Catholics that resisted uh, Pope Francis's liturgical reforms and his pastoral priorities. Uh, Benedict's presence was symbolically, you know, a sign of resistance against the direction in which Pope Francis has taken the church. So tell us a little bit about what happens now within the Vatican. Um, obviously, the the moment that, that Benedict died, there was this astonishing thing that the, the gloves came off, um, arguably against Pope Francis, that there were some rather, there's some rather unfavorable um, descriptions of him at the moment in the fact that he too is elderly. He's in his 80s. He spends a majority of his time in a wheelchair. And people have been noticing the physical weaknesses of saying he's, he's overweight, he's slurring. Has the, the departure and the retirement of Pope Benedict allowed people to be less reverential to the current Pope, given the fact that he too is an older man? I, I wouldn't say less reverential. I, I think one of the things that the retirement of uh, Benedict did was it demystified the papacy and separated, you know, the uh, the person from the office of the papacy. Uh, and, you know, I, I think in recognizing his limitations and stepping down, that's something that Francis has frequently praised. At the same time, he hasn't given any indication that he's willing to follow suit anytime soon. Uh, he's, you know, famously quipped on more than one occasion that it takes a head to govern, uh, not legs, <laughs> uh, referring to his own uh, immobility at the moment. Uh, so I, I, I think the fact that, you know, popes age, they tend to be elderly men, uh, is, is something uh, that uh, that Francis isn't running away from. And I think, you know, like Benedict, if it reaches a moment where he can't bear the responsibilities of the office, I think he'd rather step down uh, than, than run the risk. Of, of what happened during the late John Paul II uh, papacy. So while he does still govern with his head, is there a sign that now that the conservative Benedict has gone, that uh, Pope Francis can be more ambitious in his progressive views? I think uh, that would be a, perhaps a, an improper reading I think Pope Francis has stressed time and time again his the need for unity. So I think he's making incremental change in an effort to bring as many Catholics on board with him as possible. When he's had big opportunities to really uh, implement change, such as on the questions of women deacons in the church and allowing for married priests, he's punted uh, because he said the time is not right. He wanted to build more unity. Uh, so I think he'll continue to inch along rather than uh, change dramatically overnight. Christopher, the Catholic Church takes centuries. <laughs> Christopher White, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that was the National Catholic Reporter's Vatican correspondent, Christopher White, joining us on Monocle 24. <laughs> 
7.12am here in London, 2.12am in Washington, D.C., where we hope people are having a good night's rest after the U.S. House of Representatives flung itself into chaos once again yesterday by failing to elect a speaker. We've now had six votes. I'm joined by Natasha Lindstedt, who's Professor of Government at the University of Essex here in the United Kingdom. Good morning, Natasha. Good morning. So we had, as was described on the floor of the House of Representatives, Groundhog Day yesterday. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Kevin McCarthy has failed a a sixth time uh, to get 218 votes, which is what he would need to become Speaker of the House. And this, I think the the last time this happened was 1923 when it went to nine votes, but it hasn't happened in over 100 years. And normally the vote for Speaker is is a fairly smooth process because the party at this point would be united and and would want to get to to governing. Uh, But we really have no end in sight to this. What was astonishing is it, I mean, rarely does a screen occupy our dinner table, but we actually had it on. uh, We were a few hours ahead of you, obviously. And we were watching this thing last night as if it was some sort of soap opera. And that appeared to be also the mood in the house when this was all going on, that people were being accused of bringing popcorn and drinks in there. Well, I think this definitely is uh, interesting for the Democrats to watch because at this point they're united. And if we were to look at the way they were you know, several years back when there was a lot of infighting in the, in the House and the Senate, uh, they were struggling with some similar issues, but nothing anywhere near as, as big as this because their previous House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, had much more control. The Republicans seem completely out of control. There's, it's just total... Uh, disarray. Uh, and, and there's no idea who is, is going to be the next speaker. So all of this brings a lot of drama. Uh, and, and we have, you know, these 20 uh, rebellious um, House members that are, are being accused of being, you know, nihilistic, that they, they really don't care what the outcome is. Uh, and, and so that that makes it very, very unpredictable because, you know, we could see something that we haven't seen before, something like that they decide to to side with the Democrats, uh, that they change the rules. There's a lot of options that could happen to finally end this, but I think that's what makes it so riveting. Well, let's talk about these these 20, this right-wing Republican revolt. I mean, how right-wing are they? And, and they are a very, very, very outspoken and clearly an incredibly disruptive group of people. Well, 19 of them are members of this Freedom Caucus, which is the most... Uh, right-wing caucus in, in the House, and they are the right-wing uh, section of the Freedom Caucus. So when you think about how right-wing you can be, it's it's almost impossible to think you could be even more right-wing than they were before. And, and they're in favor of things like repealing uh, Medicare and Social Security. And, and so these are really staples of, uh, of you know American politics. They're something that really would not be popular at all to re- to repeal these types of things but that's what they're hoping for they don't really care about the debt ceiling um they don't really know how to govern very well they haven't had a lot of experience four of them are completely new uh, and most of them were endorsed by trump most of them were election deniers most of them uh voted against the um uh, ratifying the election of Joe Biden. So we have, you know, 
people who are more right wing than, than we could possibly even imagine. And the, the fact remains, you mentioned a moment ago that more than half of these people denied the results of the 2020 election. So you have a group of people already who are prepared to openly question the democratic process in the United States. The fact remains now is that what is happening in the US of House of Representatives is being described even by the president as embarrassing. It is embarrassing. It, it's it's embarrassing uh, for the Republicans, but actually it's really embarrassing for the country, particularly because there are important things that uh, that that the House of Representatives has to attend to. So we have all of these members that are waiting to get um, uh, uh, approved to come in, and, and and they're they're not not officially in in the chamber yet, um, but there are also important pieces of legislation that they have to look at. And one is just funding the government. When they don't keep the government funded, the last time this happened, it cost the U.S. 11 billion. And the other is addressing, as I already mentioned, the, the debt ceiling, which they seem to not care about. I mean, but this is just a sign of how American politics, particularly under Trump has completely deteriorated into some sort of selfish game of, you know, promoting what what, what they think is best, trying to get attention, um, trying to uh, be hard line on everything, not knowing how to compromise. And if you don't know how to compromise, then you don't really know how to govern, because that actually is the key to American politics is some forms of, of compromise. I mean, we see this at least if we look at what happened recently with, with um, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who's a Republican, going to Kentucky to promote a bipartisan infrastructure project. That is how things get done, is there has to be some kind of bipartisan moment here. Not only are we struggling with bipartisanship, but the Republicans just can't even get their uh, the first Congress off the ground. Just tell us a little bit about what this does for the Democrats. Um, it, it suggests that they despite what you talked about, you know, the, the infighting that we've seen in the last few years, at least in public, they were able to sell, able to keep themselves united. Right. So I think at the moment they're trying to take advantage of this because actually normally when you have a change from Speaker um, um, Nancy Pelosi and then it went to Hakeem Jeffries, that, that should be a moment where it could have been a little bit more uh, turmoil. There wasn't. They've been completely united behind Jeffries. Uh, and, and they haven't wavered. They haven't gotten tired. They, you know, some Republicans, I think it was wishful thinking, was hoping that they would be able to tire the Democrats and some of them might not show up to the vote. That hasn't happened. Um, some of them could have changed their vote. Of course, that hasn't happened either. Uh, and publicly, they're making it very clear that they are completely united, that they're the party that knows how to govern, uh, and that's what they want to want to do. There's some speculation about whether or not they want to make a deal with the Republicans to just try to get a vote. The I guess what's been referred to as some sort of nuclear option would be to say, let's change the rules, and whoever has a plurality uh, can... Um, uh, you know, be become the next speaker. Uh, but I, I don't see that as likely. Uh, bottom line, though, Democrats are very united at this moment, and they're taking advantage of the disarray in the Republican Party. So in the middle of this disarray, we have Kevin McCarthy, who had six goes at becoming uh, House Speaker. Um, he wasn't president, present in the chamber for the sixth vote. One wonders whether he's give up, but, given up, but he is not giving up. There is this astonishing stoicism and, you know, chutzpah to this man who is going back again and again and again. If it's not McCarthy, I mean, how does he leave and who replaces him? 
And that is a great question because they, they've had different people, the, the Freedom Caucus has had different people that they've put, uh, that they've nominated, uh, and none of them have really been a serious choice. Um, and, and I think that's the problem for, for the Republicans. They don't really have someone else uh, that everybody seems to want to get behind. And and Kevin McCarthy has made it clear that he is not leaving, that he's just going to stay in there and do it until, you know, as long as it takes. And, and some of this is about his own political career. This is his only chance to become House Speaker, and, and he knows it. And so he feels he's going to do what's best for him rather than what's best for the country. Uh, in a normal situation, uh, before American politics just became so self-centered and egotistical, and, and it was already beforehand, but uh, just to say, uh, if we're looking at what's happened now since the Trump era, you would have stepped down, you know, and you would have gotten behind somebody else. You wouldn't, you, you would have stepped down before the vote even came. And th this is unheard of to put it to vote, to not even know how many votes you have. And the Republicans are really, really in a quandary here because they don't seem to have a viable alternative that they can get 218 members to get behind. Natasha Linstead, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Still to come on today's Globalist. I am going to campaign very rigorously to ensure that there's regime change in Botswana. We'll find out why the former president of Botswana, Ian Kammer, is facing charges relating to firearms and money laundering. Stay with us. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Welcome back. It's 7.23 here in London and you're with The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. Now, the West may be suffering the economic consequences of the war in Ukraine and the COVID pandemic. Meanwhile, India is reaping the benefits of cheap Russian oil, a reliable supply chain and its position as a possible bridge between the East and West and North-South divisions. Well, to discuss why India is doing so well, I'm joined by Dr. Shruti Kapila, Professor of Indian History at the University of Cambridge and a regular voice on Monocle 24. A very good morning to you, Shruti. Hello. So would you mind just clarifying what India's position is at the moment with regards to the Russian invasion of Ukraine? Uh, so since the invasion in uh, last February, India has in a way held its nerve and hasn't really quite chosen a side, particularly at the very start of the war. It has also continued uh, very openly to buy uh, crude oil uh, from Russia. Uh, as it has done uh, traditionally. So some of it is continuity because India also, uh, until the very end of Trump years, 
uh, continued to buy oil from Iran despite American sanctions. But the Russian situation is slightly different uh, because uh, Russia remains one of India's closest allies and also um, is the largest exporter uh, of arms to India, something like 60% of India's defense uh, comes uh, arms comes come from uh, come from Russia, so some of it is continuity in terms of oil sanctions that India has always maintained its so-called non-aligned position going back to Iran uh, and has done so with Russia. But with Russia, the issue is also uh, the fact that there's, there's a close partnership, and in a way, India refused to, as it were, uh, you know, go ahead with the American pressure. Uh, to cut off ties at that point. It was quite a gamble to do so, wasn't it? Not quite sure if it was a gamble because um, the Americans are also uh, somewhat choiceless uh, in the matter because uh, India remains now a strategic partner and a close ally for the, for the Americans vis-a-vis China. I mean, it's not, I mean, so India has in a way carved a, a position for itself because some of India is also quite choiceless because India has a very hostile situation with China uh, unfolding as we speak. Uh, it has been ongoing now for, for two years. And the fact that the Russian and Chinese are now on very, very close terms also means that India now wants to, in a way, push for a so-called multilateral world. It doesn't want to step into or aggravate or help create a new bipolar, uh, a new uh, bipolar world. And that's been the case uh, for India for a few years uh, now, uh, given its own strategic uh, closeness to America in recent uh, in, re- in recent decades. Um, but having said all of this, this is also to do with Modi's spinning of himself, casting India in a stronger position than arguably arguably it is or it isn't. It's hard to say whether this is coming out of choicelessness or a a real sense of newfound power. Just explain a little bit more about what this strong position actually is. I mean, you mentioned there about Narendra Modi wanting to position India in in, in a place of strength. But economically, it has absolutely benefited India, hasn't it? Yes, it has. But as uh, India's uh, foreign minister makes it very clear, uh, given any opportunity, it isn't that the Europe, Europe that Europe is not buying uh, fuel from uh, from Russia or gas. Uh, in fact, India is buying very little. Uh, uh, it's just that it has refused uh, to 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 go. You know, it has refused the sanction uh, regime. Uh, so I think there is. I think what has happened, and I think this is a long term effect. On as it as it were the global war on terror, liberal internationalism, whatever whatever you want to call it, that in a way the hypocrisy of the West now has been called out by a number of you know intermediate powers and rising powers such as uh, such as such as uh, India, and uh, so the strength really is comes from the from the position that India now occupies. As a rush, uh, as an old friend of Russia's, I mean, there's a lot of uh, public support and sympathy uh, for Russia and India's growing strategic closeness and alliance, even with the Americans. It's not that the Americans are happy about it, of course not. I mean, they haven't sent an Indian amb- an ambassador to Delhi now for two years. So it's, but it's also the fact that the, it's not that the Americans can really. Um, you know, get their way uh, in India, but precisely because of India's situation as an, a strategic partner in Quad, uh, vis-a-vis China, and at the same time, I think India is a bit choiceless uh, on how to now navigate a hostile China 
which is now close to Russia. So it wants to prosecute a new kind of non-alignment, a new kind of multipolarity in world strategic affairs. So just very briefly, you're talking about this multipolarity. How does the rest of the world dance around India now? I mean, we have India as part of the Quad, which includes the United States, Japan and Australia. I mean, how do they deal with this? I mean, I, I think it's all very it's un, unfolding. I mean, as we speak, and I think a lot of it is just spinning. Uh, I think uh, it's 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 Modi's way of also projecting himself as a strong figure for India. But as I said, when you look at what is happening, there is you know Chinese incursion into India. The, you know, if you look at actually what, what it, it doesn't really feel that this is coming from just. I mean, it's it's about relative strengths and gains across the board, whether it is China, whether it is Russia, whether it is America. But yes, I mean, I don't think the Indians uh, strategically or even at a popular level would want India to be part of one massive American or Western bloc. It has never done so. It is unlikely to do it today. Shruti Kapila, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. The time here in London is 7.29. A quick summary now of some of the day's other headlines. The US President Joe Biden has raised concerns about China's handling of its COVID-19 outbreak hours after the World Health Organization said China's under-reporting virus deaths. Meanwhile, European Union member states have agreed to strongly encourage a requirement to all travellers coming from China to test negative for COVID. The decision isn't legally binding but was made by the EU's crisis management body. Travel in and out of China gets easier from Sunday as part of the scrapping of the zero-COVID policy. Ukraine is to receive armoured battle vehicles from France, President Emmanuel Macron told the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky during a phone call that his government will send light AMX 10RC armoured combat vehicles to help its war effort. So far, Western allies have not supplied Ukraine with the heavier armoured tanks that Kiev has so far been asking for. And a state of emergency has been declared in California as the state braces for the second storm in a week. The storm's expected to develop into a so-called bomb cyclone. Areas which have been already soaked could see more rain and snowstorms. Northern California is expected to be hardest hit. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. a.m. in Maputo and 8.31 in Zurich. Now, five new countries have hoisted their flags at the United Nations headquarters in New York, marking their entry into the organization's Security Council. Mozambique, Ecuador, Japan, Malta and Switzerland have all joined as non-permanent members for two years. But who would want to join at a moment when the permanent members are paralysed over Russia's invasion of Ukraine? And what difference could their presence make? Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by Paul Rogers, an international security advisor at Open Democracy. Good morning, Paul. Morning, Emma. Welcome back to Monocle 24. So, Mozambique, Ecuador, Japan, Malta and Switzerland. What does winning a council seat mean for them? Well, it gives a fair bit of prestige in the short term. It puts quite a strain on the diplomatic uh, uh, memberships of the smaller countries. So ones like uh, Mozambique, which in terms of the size of its delegation is small, and Malta as well, they would have to bring further diplomats in to support the the people already based in New York. So it puts a strain on them. But for those two years, 
um, they get a certain status. They basically uh, learn a lot. And in fact, one of the countries that was recently a member, Kenya, um, the one of the representatives there did a very good podcast just a few days ago describing what it had been like to be a member and the advantages and the experience which was gained. So from their perspective, it's part of the whole diplomatic process. And within the UN, they learn a lot and often contribute a lot. Some countries are very frequently elected to be the in, in the group. Japan, for example, and in the case of Latin America, Brazil. And there's a kind of almost a, an agreement worldwide that some states really should be considered maybe even for, for membership of the permanent membership of the Security Council if that was to happen. And the countries that are spoken about in that regard are India, Brazil, Japan and Germany. And you always tend to get a major Asian country uh, voted on and also uh, a, a major Latin American country. Now, in this particular case, of course, it is Japan which has joined from Asia. And as far as uh, other countries are concerned, then you may well get uh, one like Brazil coming in next time. So overall, it is regarded in diplomatic circles as a useful thing to do for two years, but it does put strain on the smaller delegations. And as part of this new cohort, the first timers here in Mozambique and Switzerland... Yes, Mozambique isn't too surprising. I mean, I think there are about 50 or 60 countries that have never been elected members of the Security Council. Um, most of those are very small island states or countries with major internal upheavals. Mozambique has been through it, of course, in many years and is now uh, a member for two years. Switzerland is rather different. I think that is partly because Switzerland has so much to do with the UN already. After all, you know, Geneva is almost the second centre maybe competing with Vienna these days. So the Swiss have a very sort of uh, experienced diplomatic community, but it's still a little bit of a surprise to see them not being there until very recently. It's, it's strange because the Swiss voice has already become quite a loud one before it's even started. We've, we've had, I think it was a Switzerland, Swiss former chief negotiator with the European Union saying that he wants Switzerland to push for the, the abolition of the veto rights of the major permanent powers, also wants a new council composition. Those are two radical ideas that could sort of kick-start the UN in such a, in, in a, in a, what some may argue is a very necessary way. Well, it's certainly the case that uh, you know, many people in the whole diplomatic business, if you like, think that the current structure of the UN was decided, what, 77 years ago, something like that, 78 years ago. Uh, and basically, we had the 75th anniversary of the UN uh, really quite recently, a couple of years ago. And there was a widespread feeling that, you know, it was time for reform of the, of the Security Council. There have been various plans. Um, the Swiss one is obviously a, a very tough one. But if you go back over the last 20 years, there have been ongoing negotiations. They've always been stagnated. I mean, you had, I think it was the Annan plan, Kofi Annan. What he wanted was essentially um, uh, a larger security council of 24 members, but with six of them in addition to the current five having a veto. So you spread that round a lot. So in a way, countries are going to have to get used to handling the veto situation. Uh, there was another view uh, led by Pakistan and a couple of countries that you just increase the size of the Security Council, maybe about four, but keeping the current P5. The, the whole business about permanent members, though, is crucial, which is why the Swiss guy coming in and raising this um, essentially is sort of trying to open up the debate in a more full way. Uh, the problem, of course, is that if you actually get 
a change agrees, then what has to happen is you have to get two-thirds of the members of the General uh, General Assembly. That's about, I think it's 129 people currently, or countries currently. They had to agree. But it then has to be ratified by two-thirds, including all of the P5 members, who, of course, have the right of veto. So this is the problem. The existing P5 can always, in the final analysis, stop um, the full reform. Against that, um, people are getting so frustrated with the way the situation works, and you cited the the, the position of Ukraine, that uh, there is this growing demand. Whether it will come to anything, I don't know, because, of course, on the other side, the Security Council does a huge amount in other areas, uh, basically highlighting problems in different parts of the world. Uh, it, it's a kind of central, a kind of executive. And to that extent, in many cases, people will argue, well, in that respect, it probably works. But overall, I think the mood is changing towards reform. Uh, but as I say, this has been going on for, what, uh, 20 years, more or less 20 years or more. And very briefly, Paul, you said that the mood is changing towards reform. Can you see it happening? Not in the near future, because apart from anything else, you always have the P5 problem. That can be blocked by any of those members. And I'm afraid France and Britain in particular hang on to their P5 status because, well, it's not so much a question it's all they've got in terms of world status, but it's important to them. And they still regard themselves as major powers. So you have big obstacles, but you never know the climate may change and maybe the whole problem about getting common action on the really big things like climate change may force that change finally, not before time. Paul Rogers, thank you so much as ever for joining us on The Globalist. Viewers Monocle 24. Let's turn now to Botswana, where the country's former president, Ian Kama, is facing criminal charges relating to firearms and money laundering, to name but a few. Well, this week on the Foreign Desk Explainer, Andrew Muller looks at where these accusations have come from. In more solid and established democracies, there are generally observed conventions governing the behaviour and treatment of former national leaders. Once their time is up, it is expected that they will leave office humbly and conduct themselves unobtrusively, though allowances are generally made for the publication of a score-settling memoir in which they may explain, at interminable length and in tones of turgid petulance, how they were right and everyone else was wrong. Otherwise, the former leader should be permitted to enjoy a quiet retirement, and very often a certain enhancement of their reputation, as their fellow citizens forget scandals and mishaps that seemed a much bigger deal at the time, and or draw favourable comparisons with whichever clown or indeed circus succeeded them. This is why, in the UK, for example, the once-ridiculed Sir John Major is now regarded as both sage and statesman, and why it probably won't be too much longer before people start sincerely referring to the calamitous premiership of Theresa May as the good old days. Oh, goodness me. I have to confess, when me and my friends sort of used to run through the fields of wheat... Um, the farmers weren't too pleased about that. This pact is being very much not observed in Botswana. Its former president, Ian Carmer, who held that office from 2008 to 2018, is now wanted by the law. A Botswana court has issued an arrest warrant demanding that Carmer front the beak for the possession of five illegal firearms. The alert listener may already be suspecting that there is more to this than the alleged gun collection of a 69-year-old retiree, at which point we'll need some filling in the backstory music. 
For all that Botswana is a republic, Ian Karma is royalty. His father, Sir Seretse Karma, was not only Botswana's first president upon independence in 1966, but the son of Sekgoma II, king of the Bamangwato people of Bechuanaland, which is what Botswana was called while it was still a British protectorate. Ian Karma spent his pre-politics career in Botswana's military, rising to the rank of Lieutenant General and becoming commander of Botswana's Defence Force. He was then Vice President and in due course President, and by some measures a pretty decent one. On his watch, for example, Botswana ranked consistently near the top of the Ibrahim Foundation's Index of African Governance. Karma was also prominently and correctly critical of authoritarian crooks and or crackpots in charge elsewhere on the continent. He also banned elephant hunting in Botswana, a decision which, it turned out, somewhat prompted his present predicament. This is a narrative technique known as foreshadowing. You want to keep listening now, don't you? Well, Botswana's president, Ian Kama, officially steps down on Saturday and then hands over the reins to his deputy. Yes. Kama retired after his constitutional maximum of two terms like a good Democrat and ushered his ally and vice president, Mokwitsi Masisi, into the top job like a conscientious politician. And if you have by now surmised that somewhere at the heart of this yarn is a vicious falling out between friends, quite possibly connected to elephant hunting, award yourself a gold star or something. President Masisi's decision in 2019 to reverse Karma's ban on elephant hunting is not the only source of dispute between the pair, but is the most picturesque. Karma has described Masisi as, quote, an incompetent failure and accused him of autocratic tendencies. In Botswana's 2019 parliamentary election, Karma campaigned against the Botswana Democratic Party, which he once led and which his father founded. Because Masisi was demonstrating uh, the character of a typical dictator. In 2021, Karma left Botswana. He is presently self-exiled in South Africa. Yet another warrant of arrest has been issued against former Botswana President Ian Kama. Kama, who is currently exiled in South Africa, has previously denied that he, possess, he possesses illegal firearms. The, warrant of the firearms charges against Kama have been floating around a while. The alleged offence occurred as far back as 2016, and he declined to return home to appear in court when summoned last April. He is further accused of handling stolen goods and money laundering, all of which would land him a lengthy stretch if convicted. Suspicions that this may all be more of a vindictive political purge than an impartial criminal investigation are not assuaged by the fact that Karma is joined on the hook by Botswana's former intelligence chief, Botswana's former police commissioner and a former deputy police commissioner. That was the crime, to have left the ruling party and campaigned against him. Elephant hunting, meanwhile, continues in Botswana. In December, Botswana's government estimated an annual rake of five million US dollars from elephant hunting, mostly raised from rich foreign weirdos who pay around $50,000 a time to shoot an elephant, which you'd reckon would be a difficult target to miss. Surely one could derive roughly the same degree of satisfaction in one's marksmanship from blazing away at a barn door. 
The trade is, in fairness, popular with some Botswanans for more prosaic reasons, i.e. that Botswana has the world's largest population of elephants, about 130,000 strong and growing, and that they're not always easy to live with. Elephants kill an average of four or five Botswanans every year, and beyond that eat a lot, like around 160 kilograms of vegetation per pachyderm per day, plus trample crops, break things, and get generally in the way. The scarcely less destructive feud between the current and former president shows little sign of abating. Parliamentary and presidential elections are due in Botswana in 2024, and Karma says he intends to campaign against his former protégé once his name, by as yet unspecified means, at an as yet unspecified time, is cleared. And I'm going to use all that influence to ensure that he does not come back, because he's not good for the country. And that is why they are trying everything to ensure that I'm removed uh, from the scene by hook or by crook. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much indeed to Andrew. You're with The Globalist. Time now to continue with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Terry Stiasny, political journalist and author. I'm not sure, I don't think it's too late to say Happy New I Year. I was just thinking it's not too Happy New Year. <laughs> Lovely to have you with us. Um, You've been looking at sort of the the newspapers are now returning in earnest to to sort of proper big grown-up news. So what's uh, what's making the headlines? Well, yes, as you say, it's kind of very much the sort of back-to-school feeling this week, I think. Um, let's start in France, uh, where Le Figaro is talking about the offer that came yesterday uh, from France to deliver what they call, and you know, the translations here are important, you understand that to be important, um, light tank, light battle tanks in, Fra- in French, char uh, de combat léger uh, to Ukraine. So this announcement, uh, which they say has been expected, um, and France is going to send uh, these vehicles to the Ukraine following the army minister's visit there recently, um, and this is apparently one of the first times that Ukraine will be given Western-made material, and that is the the French presidency's view of it. Uh, Now, for those who are interested in the military hardware, which is obviously uh, important here, these are AMX-10s, and they are reconnaissance vehicles which were put into service in the army in 1981 in France and have been used in many conflicts, including uh, the First Gulf War in Afghanistan, uh, in the Sahel, and they are described by the Figaro as being very mobile and they can be used for reconnaissance missions um, as well as for uh, supporting fire outside of combat. Um, I think we can both safely say that we're not military hardware experts here but um, the interesting thing in here is that well two points that you raised firstly that the first time that the French used them was in the 1980s so I don't think mm. we can suspect, suggest they're that these not are, you know just rolling brand new made this <laughs> is not these aren't brand new um, but there is also the issue that the Ukrainians want something even bigger than this this is not what the Ukrainians essentially wanted well yes this is interesting because it was sort of flagged up you know by, by France and Ukraine has welcomed it and said, look, well, you know, well, thank you, thank you very much for that. We're very happy to have those. But uh, Zelensky said in, in his evening video address, um, Zelensky thanked Macron for his announcement. It showed the need for other allies to provide heavier weapons. There is no rational reason, he said, why Ukraine has not yet been supplied with Western tanks. And there's a, um, the Guardian website is helpfully updating us uh, the difference here um, and saying it's the 
the difference between a tank, um, uh, which is what Ukraine would like to have, and an armoured vehicle, which is what everyone, including France and possibly the United States, are generally offering them, is their role on the battlefield. And the tank is an armoured vehicle that's specifically used to break enemy lines. So uh, Ukraine has asked for US heavier tanks and German leopard tanks. And so, you know, there's a difference here, which is obviously strategically and militarily very important. And that's what Ukraine is is pushing to get, uh, you know, more contributions from the West. It does sort of bear the hallmarks of the fact that that Ukraine's war and its success in pushing back the Russians is dependent almost entirely on on everybody else's decision on what they choose to send. Yes. And so, you know, they have been doing, obviously, there have been huge contributions. And I think it's just, it's quite interesting that uh, Ukraine is now, I think one of the things originally in the conflict was they said, well, look, we tend to need stuff that's come, been made in, in Eastern Europe, because that's what works with, with our systems that we have. And now they are taking things from um, from elsewhere in the world. Um, but obviously, they would like to be able to do more. And the West at the moment, although they're contributing a lot in terms of finance and a lot in terms of, of weaponry, are still a bit reluctant to send them you know the the real heavy guns right let's move on to british politics uh, uh, the british prime minister rishi sunak stood up yesterday and delivered what everybody thought was kind of like a party election plan that he never was able to do last year when he was sort of slightly sideways ushered into number 10 um i think a lot of the criticism that came from this was what exactly have you said that's new and you know and prove it it was a very strange lightweight speech that i think someone suggested that had a ceo stood up and delivered that speech they would have been fired on the spot yes it was a big sort of a very wide ranging speech and rishi sunak had these these five promises um that he made and i think most of the commentators pointed out that a lot of the promises are things that are fairly likely to happen regardless of what policies rishi sunak puts into place so if inflation halves that's probably you know due to things beyond his control and it's something that's forecast to happen anyway if the economy is technically in growth you know well that'll be fine if it happens if the economy is not in growth people will not judge him on the target but they'll judge him on you know the fact that uh, Britain would be in a recession uh, and he was also talking about the health service and the importance of reducing waiting lists now waiting lists is not necessarily the thing that people see as the problem at the moment the thing that mo- many people see as the problem is the absolute sort of crush and the lack of capacity to deal with people going in, for instance, to to accident and emergency. So he was kind of long on talking in in general terms about these aims and about lots of other things like, you know, the importance of family as well and lots of sort of optimistic, you know, sort of wide-ranging stuff. But, I mean, I think one of the other things about it is Rishi Sunak, he... He sounded quite sort of hesitant and with his emphasis strangely and and pausing in strange places when he was doing the speech. He was much more excited and interested and engaged when he was answering questions from journalists. And there he did seem to have quite a lot more practical ideas about what he might actually do about the health service, for instance, most of which didn't didn't make it into the speech. His speechwriters and comms team getting six out of ten, <laughs> I think, from Terry Stiesny. Finally, we've got one minute to go through the fact that um, there could be the beginnings of a deal when it comes to the return of the 
Elgin stroke Parthenon marbles. Yes. Now, this is interesting. There have been reports uh, that uh, the Greek government and the British Museum, which is now uh, who's chaired by George Osborne, the former chancellor, that they've been holding talks with Greek ministers over the past year. The interesting thing I point out is that most of the commentary in the British papers about this is actually remarkably supportive. So we have people like uh, Stephen Fry, um, the actor and, and author, who's been advocating for the return of the, the sculptures to Athens, saying this is a win-win solution. The Parthenon sculptures is like... Uh, removing the Eiffel Tower from Paris or Stonehenge from Salisbury. Um, and a former culture minister, Ed Vasey, who's writing in The Times, saying that, again, this is a win-win situation. Pursuing a two-way exchange, he says, would enhance, not denude the British Museum. So the idea might be that you would have a trade that Greek exhibits would come to Britain for a while and, and in return they would have the, the Parthenon sculptures in Athens for a while. So he's just saying this is, again, generally a positive thing and talking about renew, reunifying this precious work of art in its home should not be seen as relinquishing power or making Britain small far from it. Terry Stiasny, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. You're with The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, Contact us at UBS.com. Finally, on today's programme, it's time to talk television with the critic and broadcaster, Scott Bryan. A very good morning to you, Scott. Good morning. Good to have you with us. Now, most of us sort of were slumped on a sofa over the holidays, uh, watching quite a lot of Netflix. But are we a declining number? I mean, possibly so. I mean, you weren't the only one um, (laughs) watching Netflix on New Year's Day. It ends up being one of the actually the most popular streaming days of the entire year. But they reckon that Netflix um, has uh, is expected to lose more than half a million UK subscribers in 2022, has has already lost that and could potentially lose a further 200,000 this year. Now, that's all down to the fact of, of course, the cost of living continuing to rise. Um, I think many people are looking at their finances in January trying to work out uh, how much they've, they've been spending and where and I think something uh, important to point out is that TV at the end of the day is enjoying is enjoyable but it's not a necessity particularly the fact that we all have to pay a tv license so people will still be able to watch tv in the evenings and watch a great selection of programs but they might be not watching the premium more high drama level offerings so i think this kind of gives an indication of how hard streaming services are actually going to find it this year the fact that at the end of of a day people don't feel obliged to pay for all of these additional streaming services. It's an interesting point that you make that I I hadn't necessarily thought of, the fact that if you are really watching the pennies, you could be being driven back into the arms of the traditional broadcasters. Yeah, I mean, this is the sort of a thing that I think could be actually benefit for... uh, beneficial for public service broadcasters actually because i feel that part of their survival is done down to the fact that people have to pay for them anyway i think it's also down to the fact that they um you know have been able to tailor a lot of their programming for streaming um in recent years and you've seen huge investments on domestic services such as iplayer having a lot of box set viewing so a lot of the time you're able to watch shows that might you may have not seen the first time round anyway so case in point happy valley you know hugely successful show um created by sally wainwright and starring sarah lancashire the first series of that was out in 2014 the most recent series is just out now so millions of people have been watching the first two series of that show 
um, in order to feel that they've caught up before the latest one on. And I think many people have been enjoying that. And that's the sort of a streaming service uh, thing that we have usually associated with streaming. You know, the idea of box set viewing has actually come to public service broadcasters. So, so long as viewers feel that they are able to watch enough programmes, I don't think they'll complain. And it does change the mood, doesn't it, when it comes to plans to privatise certain channels? I mean, there was a huge um, upset last year when uh, Britain's Channel 4 was, was mark, earmarked for privatisation, but that seems to be a, a dead idea now. It does seem to be. The Culture Secretary, uh, Michelle Donnellan, has um, sort of indicated uh, to Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, that there's little appetite for the privatisation of Channel 4. I think Channel 4 is a quite a unique broadcaster by the fact that it's in public ownership, but it actually puts all of its money, its profits back into making programming. So it doesn't actually uh, take any money from, from the taxpayer. But the government has been very keen to privatise it, saying that it could be so much more successful if it was acting like a streaming service. But I think the fact that streaming services have been having a very difficult couple of years, shedding subscribers, losing billions of pounds, I think it's the idea that actually there's no real appetite. The TV industry seems to be against it. But it's also the fact that Channel 4 have been known for making distinctive programmes that no other channel would touch with a barge pole. And that could be a good thing because they allow so much creativity, give an idea for, give an opportunity for, for, for writers and um, actors that other channels sort of don't tend to invest that much in. And I think it's the fact that they've realised that maybe the, they have been finally listening and realising that actually there's, there's no appetite for privatisation. Finally, Scott, we've been mentioning the, the British television market for the last few minutes. Let's expand our view globally and, and turn to Hollywood. I mean, is Hollywood expecting the same turmoil that you've just been describing with Britain? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but it seems to be. Um, the Financial Times has a report sort of saying that there is going to be a quote-unquote year of turmoil. And I think it's the fact that there are many uh, many sort of uh, indications. There's an economic recession, there's um, a slow streaming growth. And also the cinema has not managed to return to the levels of people within them as before the pandemic. So I think it's sort of uh, many different things happening at the same time. And, and these large companies that are not making the amount of money that they had initially promised to investors, I think it could be certainly a very difficult 2023. Uh, Scott, in the 30 seconds that remains, I'm going to absolutely put you on the spot. We've watched okay. everything over Christmas. Uh, what should we be looking forward to this month if we are not going out and just spending an awful lot of time on a sofa? Well, I would say Happy Valley, definitely. If you have the opportunity to not watch that, please do so. Um, I would say also there's a few good things um, coming up. There's Nolly, which is a Russell T. Davis drama that looks at um, Crossroads, the kind of iconic British soap that looks at the... Um, the difficulties that happened with this open in the 1980s. It stars Helena Bonham Carter. I think Race Across the World, a hugely successful British show, is coming back. We don't know exactly when, but fairly soon. There is a lot between now, now and March, I'd say. Um, just basically keep your eyes peeled. Scott Bryan, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle 24. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Marcus Hippie, Emma Searle and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Lillian Fawcett and our studio manager was Callum McLean. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday here in London. The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>